0: Our passage this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and I believe you can find that in the Pew Bible on page 557. I intend to cover all of uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. I won't read the entirety of the chapters. In the opening chapters, though, of Ecclesiastes, by way of review, Ecclesiastes, or Kohelet, is the name of the teacher, Uh, the one who assembles people, Uh, we have presumed that that is King Solomon. He has a great deal of wealth. He has a great deal of wisdom. He has the ability, because of those resources, to explore anything in life, practically. If you think of it, uh, he can discover, uh, more than most people could imagine, uh, in his wisdom he went seeking after meaning and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, permanence. He can't seem to find that for sure because all of life he refers to this word as, as hebel. It's the Hebrew word that uh, uh, is translated uh, vanity, but it means more than that. It means uh, a, a vapor, a mist that life... Is uh, is fleeting. It's it's temporary. We can't contain it. It's like a bubble. You try to reach your arms around it, and it just it implodes altogether. Uh, he goes on to de- deconstruct in the opening chapters all the ways that he sought to find joy uh, in the things of life, and then he just keeps bumping into that Hebel. And then in chapters four through seven. He takes a step back from wisdom. Wisdom is something of great value. It's it's obviously precious. It can be used well like money or a person's strength. But nevertheless, it's still inevitably limited. In the previous chapter, in chapter 7, he alludes to this when he says in verse 23, I've tested by wisdom. I have said I will be wise, but it was far from me. He goes on to say "You, you cannot find it out. So wisdom cannot altogether save us. Wisdom cannot give us control. It cannot give us a full comprehension of why the world is the way that it is. And we know the world is, well, confused at best, chaotic some days. It's definitely crooked. The world is not the way we would want it to be or is it supposed to be. Why is it that way, by by the way? why is the world the way that it is broken, regardless of, of, of what sphere or strata or time zone or culture or where in the history of time you find yourself? It is the same. It is messed up. Well, we, we saw right prior to where we're going to read in chapter 8, in the verse previous in chapter 7, verse 29, he says that God, he records, made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God made humanity upright and in that being righteous and in a right relationship with God we had the fullness of blessing, life, joy. We had rest. And unfortunately, tragically our parents in the garden chose and we with them also in our unbelief have chosen to disregard God's law. And now we live under a curse. The the whole of creation now lives under the curse you tell me another explanation for why the world is the way that it is because it 's not simply a lack of wealth or education or uh, you know good rules it doesn 't matter we still lo- we live and, and in fact, all of creation has an element of corruption, and we all die. Chapters eight through ten, which we 'll be looking at the next couple of weeks he 's talking less about Hebel or hebel the the hebrew word, and he 's talking more. Uh, merely about pure evil. It's a troubling outlook, of course. Ecclesiastes is a bit of a depressing book. Some say it was written by a philosophy major on a Monday morning. Uh, we get by, right? Okay? And that, that really is depressing. It, it, is a, it is kind of stirring some melancholy within us if we only look at it through the lens and the view of life under the sun. That's the phrase that he repeats, and it's several times in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Which is to say, if we only look at it from the vantage point uh, you know taking and setting god the creator aside just life as it is then what we find is a limited perspective here there is a great deal of evil in the world but if we view it in the scope of god's control god's authority and his glory then we have a different perspective the world is it, the world is evil and and evil dwells even within our own hearts nevertheless We find in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has placed eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? Except that we still search it out. We still want to find meaning. We still desire. We know that unfortunately in our unrighteousness, Romans says, Paul writes, that we've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So we're still searching, but we just don't want to be God, even though God is the answer. We are still fledgling around, and yet... Part of that eternity in our hearts and having a conscience and a, and a knowledge of God and a knowledge of good and evil is that in the midst of all of that, we can find at least a protection from ourselves. God didn't just turn us over to say, let me mock you, right? You try to make sense of the world as if just to say, your destiny is condemnation and mockery. It's not that. But for His people, He actually is seeking to bring mending and redemption through the person and work of Jesus. And only through that. Are you a child of God? Well, you can be today. And you're only a child of God through Christ, through Jesus. And, and even though we face a lot of trials and tests in this broken world, in this fallen life, we can have hope and we can have meaning. But there's something that we cannot have. We cannot have control. Plain and simple, I know this is uh, going to be a sermon, an exercise in stating the obvious, but we cannot have control. I was listening to that great decade of music, uh, the '80s on Spotify. Thank you Tears for Fears that British pop band came up. Everybody wants to rule the world. love that song it 's actually a song about the cold world, uh, the Cold War, and the fact that communists would like to take over nations. But really all of us can resonate with the fact that we would like to rule our world. We wish that we could control our little world, don't we? Solomon, the richest, wisest man in the world, is lamenting the fact, the reality, that life is out of control. So let's read it together. I invite you to stand as we read part of God's word here. Chapter 8, beginning verse 1. Who, he writes, is like the wise... And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commands, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time. And the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the Spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not uh, executed speedily, the heart of the, tr- of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with those with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there is a righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are, all, are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, And drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night nor uh, one's eyes sees sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that has been done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. Chapter 9, but this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is also he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they after that they go to the dead but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion verse 5 for the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for their memory for the memory of them is forgotten Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. You may be seated. This is God's word. Let's ask his help. Father, we ask uh, right now that you uh, would be pleased. Thank you uh, for this sacred record, and we we ask that you be pleased and, and glorify yourself by sending your spirit to be in my speaking and in our hearing that you would make anything that is unclear, and there are definitely things here, would you make them more clear? But not for our insight and not for our our information, but for change. Not just for learning, but also for living. For we ask this in Christ's name and to his praise, amen. Just three questions that I want to address from the text. The the first question is, what do we know? Uh, The next is, what do we control? And the last one is... The so what question. What are we to do? What do we know? What do we control? And what are we to do? Well, first of all, what do we know? We know, verse 1, uh, that there is none like the wise. He asks the question, who is like the wise? The answer, of course, is there's no one like that. When you have wisdom, it's a, it's a valuable thing. In the first opening verses, he says, he's encouraging uh, students of wisdom to not defy the power of the authority. In this case, it's a, it's a king. It's a monarch. But it could be applied, obviously, elsewhere. The king in particular, he says, Listen, you are to obey his commands, verse 2, because his word is supreme, verse 4. And and that's true whether or not he is tainted or or flawed or corrupt. It's still a person of authority. Of course, in our unbelief and in some of our own pride, we like to create a world where we know uh, and we do what is best according to our own estimation And so as a result, from time to time, we choose, of course, to to defy or to question uh, authority, those who will have authority over us. And he is saying that wisdom would have us honor those in authority because if you curse or you ignore the king or your supervisor or some leader that God has appointed to have authority over us, well, then you're a fool and you're only asking for trouble. Well, what else do we know? Well, the bottom line is... Not much. Not much at all. We don't know the future, right? Look again at verse 7. What does he say? For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? We don't know what is coming down the road. Then also in chapter 8, verse 16, uh, we cannot know the works of God. They're a mystery to us at times. It's veiled to us. What God has purposed and planned in the future, uh, we do not know. We, we cannot understand. Our finite bodies, our finite minds uh, cannot perceive and understand. It's veiled to us. We cannot know if people will love or whether they will hate. Verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 9, quote, Man does not know, he writes. We cannot know when it is, not if, but when it is our time for suffering or death. Let's look again uh, chapter 9. Actually, we're going to go down. I didn't read this one, but it's verse 12. But it echoes in chapter 8 as well. Chapter 9, verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them cannot know the time. But we do know that we will die. If there's something we know with certainty is that, that all men die. And we know because verse 4 tells us it's better to be a dead dog than a... Excuse me. Let's read it again. What does it say? That was kind of, that was kind of startling, wasn't it? But he who is joined, chapter 9, verse four, verse 4, but he who is joined with the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Dogs were not prized and, and in the ancient Near East they would have been pretty lowly, but even that is better than having power and authority and being dead. It's better to be alive. It's 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 obviously better. You have an opportunity for perceiving and, and understanding what God would have. You have hope. Isn't this cheering you all up? Well, let's move on to consider what it is that we control. Doesn't seem like we know a whole lot. God's given us what we do need to know that's of, of essence, but there's pieces that we don't. What do we control? Well, like knowledge, the simple, the simple and straightforward answer is we, we control next to nothing. And if we live under an illusion if we think that we are in control. And that illusion is illustrated on a couple of fronts. Uh, chapter 8, verse 8 is one of them. You see there the pride of humanity It leads us to believe that we have control even over the forces of nature that God would have, like the wind. Verse 8 says, no man has control uh, over the wind to contain or restrain it. Now, we won't need many illustrations of that come hurricane season in a month or so. uh, But it's, it's pretty staggering and ironic that there's actually a guy who thinks that he has got a solution to hurricanes. That you could fly over with a plane and drop down these, uh, you know, congealing uh, polymers that will somehow slow the force of wind. It's a big idea. He hasn't come up with any big investors to see if it's going to work yet. Uh, but you, you can imagine that's 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 crazy. Verse eight. We're also reminded there that we shouldn't live under any illusion that we have control over the day of our death. Obviously, some do, and that's the the, the, the some choose to take their own life and suicide but we know that that is a selfish sinful thing, a tragic thing that some people feel as though no, there is no option. It's not the unpardonable sin but it's a tragedy. We also, we also know that we do not have control over the injustices of the world. We must admit how troubling it is when we see others that we don't think deserve or do deserve something or we ourselves, we've talked about this in previous, previous weeks, we have a sense of entitlement, and we, we, we presume upon God's uh, mercy when we don't deserve it. That's why we call it mercy. But our culture, of course, all the, to- all the while is screaming about fairness, and yet doesn't give true attention to true biblical justice. Many times the illusion persists because we get to define fairness, or we try to define fairness in our own terms. Chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 is that the dilemma, right? The, the unrighteous getting what the righteous deserve and vice versa. It's true. We can't, we can't deny that it goes on every day. Even in a system where there's, there's, there's precise and swift judgment, it still happens. It still is occurring in a fallen world. We also cannot control outcomes Look over into chapter 9, verse 11. And I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, not the battle to the strong nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, which is not fatalism, which is not luck or chance in that sense. It's just that it unfolds in ways that are mysterious to us. We have responsibilities, but we can't control the outcomes we take steps, but we don't guarantee anything. We cannot even control our own legacy after we die. Because in chapter 9, verse 15, uh, you can read it for yourself later, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a short you know, illustration of a man who was poor but wise, and he saved the whole city, and then he died. And then everyone looked at each other and said, that was great, but what, what was the guy's name again? So, heroic or non heroic, great or small, we will all be forgotten. You might have a statue someday. It might even be torn down. It doesn't matter. We all will be in our legacy. We cannot know or control that. Lastly, we cannot control. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 17. Here's something else we have no control over. The words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Well, there's plenty of shouting. There's plenty of rulers and, and, and governors and people, even in our representative republic, that scream and, scream and scream and scream and scream and scream. And I wish they would sit down. But you can't control the victory or the voices or the volume of a fool. So who knows, then? Who is in control, if even the wise cannot, it's all God. The very opening verse of chapter 9, read it again. But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and all their deeds are what? They are in the hand of God. They're not in my hands. They're in the hand of God. How does that make you feel? Elsewhere, the prophet Isaiah writes this of God, of his character, of his power and authority. Isaiah 46 says, "Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not and yet to be," saying, "My counsel shall stand; I, the Lord, says, will accomplish all my purposes." God is sovereign. There's never a time, a moment, a scenario that God is wringing his hands, wondering the outcome, curious, I, I, I hope they choose well, I, I wonder what's going to transpire, I hope that I could influence things. God, God is never like that. God has complete and sovereign control, his knowledge, his authority, his presence. Sometimes, of course, the working of the hand of God as we see it unfolding in a way that we would never have scripted, right? I read an article this past week. It says uh, that life is what happens after you make plans. Yeah? Can I get an Amen. Sometimes that mystery unfolding, especially when it's in the valley of troubling times and trials... I haven't experienced a great deal of the weight of loss. But I'm encouraged when I see the lives of saints who know that they are not in control and yet have peace. We think that knowledge is control. We think that money is control. We think that, that uh, rehearsing something over and over and over and over and over and over in our mind will somehow gain control. And it doesn't. Down through history, there's been great examples. American philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards, his wife's name, uh, Sarah, she was widowed. They still had 10 children. He had just become the president of Princeton at the time, and he died. Sarah, his widowed wife, writes their daughter, My dear very child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hand upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are given to God and there I am and love to be your affectionate mother, Sarah. So whether in preparation for that which is to come that we don't know on the horizon or even in the wake of what's already happened, what are we to do? If there is evil in the world and things are out of control and things are chaotic and I can't control the outcomes and I can pour myself in with all this energy, what are we to do? I heard an analogy before of how our pursuits of control and knowledge, the knowledge and control that only God possesses is like, uh, it's, it's like a malady that we experience in the form of like a spiritual motion sickness. Some of you know motion sickness, right? You're driving down the road and, and there's movement and you're, you're rapidly moving along. And that's all around, you can sense it even if you close your eyes, you can feel the bumps in the road, you can feel the acceleration, the jarring, but you're trying to do something else. That's what makes it worse, of course, sometimes when you're looking down and you're you're trying to read a, a book or look at a screen and then it intensifies that, right? Because you're getting mixed signals. Right, you're trying to have things slow and, and then then things are fast, and you don't want it that way. And motion sickness is not something that you 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 catch. It's not you know it's not because of something you ate. It's it's something that you know sneaks up on you, and you you can't control it. And there it is. But that's because you've got mixed signals. Don't live. That's a spiritual motion sickness that we have when it comes to control and control and knowledge, because we we can't. We live in a world where we wish that we can control and we live under the illusion that we can control and we try to, we try to work and fix and yet it's, it's out of our reach and so we develop this motion sickness and the symptoms of it are not, by the way, nausea and vomiting. The spiritual sickness that comes when we're trying to grasp and grasp and grasp for control is manifest in other symptoms like anger and anxiety, and frustration, and sleeplessness. So what are we to do? Three things I want to commend to us for application from the text. First is, honor those in authority. The second is to fear God. And the third is to enjoy the small gifts of life. First of all, honor those in authority, whether it's in the context of the family, the church... Or our governing society. God has placed people over us. They have covenant responsibilities. And yes we're not living in a monarchy. We don't have a a king. We have a representative republic. For which I'm very grateful. I think you are too. And those people need to be held accountable. But that we're told in the text. In the proper time. And the proper way. To present grievances and disagreements in those proper wise ways we're told in verse 5 of chapter 8. So we honor authority but we don't... We, excuse me, we honor the whoever that is you know, the governing authorities. We honor them but we don't worship them. Second thing we should do is to fear God. Plain and simple. It's spelled out for us beginning in chapter 8 verse 12. And there are many facets to what it means and looks like and taking shape, fear fearing God. I'll just give two of them. One, to fear God, which is all over the scriptures, it's the very beginning of, of wisdom. But the first thing is that I would highlight is to fear God is to acknowledge that He is holy, other, perfect. And we are not. We are hopeless and helpless. We are sinners. We're broken. And we're and then going back to the whole issue of control, you think about it. The, The the Bible commends to us, Jesus uh, commends to us that we should seek control. Of what? Ourselves. Our emotions. Our tongue. Our actions. How are we doing on that? Yeah? There is a fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and one of those is self-control. Because we don't have it unless God gives it to us as a fruit of surrendering. If we fear God, He gives us the fruit of self control. Part of fearing God is to surrender also by faith. In other words, God, I cannot see, I cannot understand, and yet I trust you to be good and to be wise. I trust your plan. In fact, even in the face of injustices, I trust your future plan to bring all things to account. That there will be an ultimate day of justice. And that is, that is beyond my knowledge, understanding, and control. And that gives me peace. You will someday make all things right and all things new. Part of fear in God means that we stop grasping for control. And instead... Like I said, there's that tug of war that goes on inside of us. The symptoms of which are frustration and stress and sleeplessness and anxiety. We have to give up control. And part of giving up control is to entrust ourselves to the mercy of God. To entrust ourselves to him who is gracious. And to the things that he has purchased us with his blood on the cross. So we're to honor those in authority. We are to fear God. And then third, we are to enjoy life. Let's mention in a few places that we should eat and drink. Then in chapter 9, I didn't read it, but I'll read it now. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife of God whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil in which you toil under the sun. He says, whatever you do, whatever work you have to do, do it. Enjoy God's gifts, food and drink and relationship and work even, but with a view fixed on God. Because if you put friends... And substances and work in front of God. And you compromise God's law in the pursuit of those things. You will suffer. Don't be anxious. Don't be greedy. Don't be consumed with worry. Because if you do, you won't enjoy the things that He has given you. If God has given them to you, then enjoy those gifts and do it to His praise and to His honor and glory with thanksgiving. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. Paul writes to the glory of God. Can you thank God? Can you praise Him? Can you can you see the gift giver, or is the gift too large, too prized, too exalted, too sown into your hearts? He mentions, of course, the spouse. To enjoy uh, your wife, whom you love, all the days of your short, your vain life. He's talking there about the beauty of companionship, which is indeed a gift. And what is better, by the way? What is better, as much as we grasp after it frantically at times, what is better than knowledge or control? I mean, you know, when you go through life and and there's trials and troubles and heartaches and headaches and, um, and, and so on, and what's better than knowledge or control to make it through all of that except a friend? What would be wonderful and even essential to navigate life in a broken, fallen world? Well, my dad and I last night were watching a YouTube video of a James Taylor concert. It was awesome. And... He has the answer because he rings this in in his song, You've Got a Friend. You've got a friend when you're down and troubled and you need a helping hand. I will come running. Now, on this point, I think the the classic hymnal has it better than James Taylor. I can say that because I do love James Taylor. But there's a better one, a 19th century hymn that we're going to sing here in a moment as our closing But Joseph Shryvan called What a Friend We Have in Jesus, a 19th century hymn. It's been made popular. A lot of people like it from Bing Crosby to Tina Turner to Alan Jackson. They all have a rendition of What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Christ is our only true, ultimate, reliable, faithful, sufficient friend. One that we could never so much as desire, but our Our world is filled with false illusions that try to get us to to cope when we need the comfort of a friend who can empathize with us and love us and guide us into truth. So as clear as Jesus says it to us and invites us in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. This is the most important point of application. Meditate on Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Cry to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Follow Jesus. My friends, life is not fair. We are limited. How are you going to cope? our sweet yet sovereign friend, Jesus. I had a chance the year before we were married to travel to West Africa and the country of Senegal on the, the very tip of Africa. It's, there's a notorious place on an island there that is where a great deal of slave trade made its way out. So many slaves made it through this port on their way to North America. And even amidst all of the injustices and tragedies and the horror of the slave trade, there are stories of hope in Jesus. A story of a Senegalese slave from West Africa in the early 18th century, a woman named Phyllis Wheatley, was sold into slavery. She was only seven years old. She ended up being brought to Boston. She eventually was adopted by a Christian family, the Wheatleys, and they eventually emancipated her. Her life was marked with a lot of injustices, sorrow, many, many times over. But she wrote many poems to express her gratitude to God for bringing her to America so that she could hear the gospel. What a friend we have in Jesus. And she wrote a poem of Jesus, her dear friend. She says, How Jesus' blood. For your redemption flows, see him in his hands, outstretched upon the cross, immense compassion in his bosom glows. He hears revilers, nor resents their scorn, what matchless mercy is in the Son of God. When the whole human race by sin had fallen, he delighted to die that they might rise again and share within the sublimest skies life without death and glory without end. She had a friend in Jesus. She went on to be a remarkable student of the Bible, of Greek, English. She was the first ever published African-American female poet in America. Her parents, her adopted parents, had died when she was young. And she married a man named John Peters in Boston. He was a poor grocer. They had uh, three uh, children. All of them died in their young age. She herself died in obscurity and poverty at age 31. You can choose to believe this by faith. We can still have meaning and joy even though we cannot fully comprehend nor control God's sovereign plan. But we have the greatest amount of meaning and joy when we come close to Christ. In fact, we need to repent of all the ways we've tried to engineer our lives under the illusion that comforts us that says, I want to be in control and in power and in influence and I want to be in judgment. But the greatest thing that we can be is in Christ, united to him by faith, a friend and advocate whose triumph is sweet. The hymn writer says it, we're about to sing it, What a privilege we have in coming to Christ. We're going to sing this. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, how sweet you are to grant to us Jesus. Would you forgive us for failing to trust you, to trust your forgiving and loving arms in everything, joyful in every season of sorrow and grief, we want to come to you. I pray today that people who are experiencing some of the harsh tests and trials and troubles of life right now, for those who feel lonely, I pray you would comfort them. I pray you would embolden us to go and seek and to see those people. Lord, I pray for those who are heading off to college, who are just back at college already. I pray for Harmony. Lord, I pray for Graydon, for Jack, for Wes. Lord, I pray that you would guide them, you would guard them, that you would keep them. I pray that you would give them friends that point to the great friend of sinners, Jesus give them Christian fellowship, establish them. Lord, we pray today for our country. We pray for our leaders. Lord, we pray for our president and his cabinet. We pray for congressional leaders. We pray for our Supreme Court justices. Lord, our our governor of the Commonwealth, local leaders and representatives. Lord, even our bosses and supervisors that you might teach us respect for authority, that we might live in a humble Christian manner. And we do pray that you would give them strength and wisdom. We pray you would have mercy through your blood and to your glory, Christ. Even now, as we pray together, as you have taught. us,